Well, so glad to see you guys at the six that you survived the blizzard this week. So glad that you found a way to get here tonight. It's just funny watching it all unfold on TV from where we are, right? And I just, I keep having the same thought that constantly hits me when I watch that stuff. It's like, you can choose where you live. Like, you don't have to live there. But I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Before we jump in, let me give you a um, little heads up that's especially relevant for those of you that are here tonight. There's this game that's coming up in two weeks that some people get excited about called the Super Bowl. Looks like it's going to be the Broncos and the Panthers that are going to be playing, so no one will care. But... um, (laughs) That said, we found out a few years ago, we, we had this service and we thought, you know what, we are going to have a service, we don't care. And like all six of us, we just really enjoyed it. It was a, a great, great experience. And so we learned our lesson. There's certain things that you just can't fight. So here's what we want to let you know, and we started doing this a couple years ago, that in two weeks on February, the weekend of February 6th and 7th, this service will take place on Saturday night. And so there'll be a special Saturday night, 6 o'clock service for Super Bowl Sunday. And so all of you that this works best for your schedule. Make sure you make a note of that in your phone. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of folks who normally come in the morning who consider Super Bowl Sunday like a national holiday who will show up. So um, plan on that service being massive on that night. And we just wanted to give you a heads up two weeks in advance. Not next week, but two weeks in advance to make sure you're a part of that. Well, we've been in the middle of this series called You Asked For It. And this is week four, but it's actually question number two in our countdown. You might recall, if you haven't been here, I'll bring you up to speed. Way back in December, we sent out a survey and hundreds of folks filled it out and we asked the question, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? And we asked people to give us five responses and we've been working through those five and we'll conclude next weekend with what ended up being number one. But today is number two and it's interesting because the questions have gotten, I believe, harder and more complex as we've counted them down. And number two that we're going to cover over the next few moments is this question. If God is powerful, why does he allow tragedy and suffering? And it's a great question. And it would be much easier to have this discussion around this question if we approached it from just a philosophical letter level or a theoretical level or even an academic level. But the truth is, the reason people ask this question and the reason that it's number two and the reason it's troubling for most of us is it's at a very personal level. Level because we know tragedy and we know suffering firsthand. And we're wondering things like this why did my parents have to get a divorce? Why did my son or my daughter get hit and killed by a drunk driver? Why did abuse happen in my home when I was growing up where I was supposed to be loved and protected? Why did my mom or my dad get cancer? There's not a better person in the world than them. Why did the only person I ever really loved? abandoned me. And there are no easy answers to these questions. Trust me, theologians, smart people have struggled with this question, the problem of pain and suffering for centuries upon centuries. And it's easy to to approach this moment and to give cliche answers, especially when suffering is what others are going through. Some of you have had that happen. But when it's your loved one that's in the accident, your child in the hospital, your job that's been eliminated, your marriage that's falling apart, those shallow answers, they just don't work. They seem insulting, actually, at some level. I think all of us have wondered, why didn't God, why didn't God just create a world with no tragedy 
and no pain and no suffering. Perhaps no one asks this question with greater intensity than a man we meet in the middle of the Old Testament, a man by the name of Job. If you have a Bible, you can join me in Job chapter 21. But I want you to know that Job is actually, the book of Job, the literature of Job, is actually considered possibly by scholars the oldest written part of the Bible. So it's not chronologically, but it's the oldest written part. And we learn that Job was a good man who trusted God, and the scripture tells us that he shunned, he pushed away evil. And for a while, everything seemed like it was the way it should be for a good guy like Job, because we believe if you're a good guy, then what? Good things happen. He was a wealthy rancher who had seven sons and three daughters. He was in good health. He had a country club membership. He spent the winter in Cancun just sipping drinks on the beach. Job had a great life. He had it all. He was a good guy. But in the narrative, we discover that one day, through a series of calamities, he lost it all. His wealth was largely gathered around oxen and donkeys and camels. And all of these were stolen. And his sheep and his employees were suddenly destroyed by a fire. A tornado-like wind collapsed his house on top of his children as they were gathering to eat together, killing them all. He heard the words, if you read the narrative at the first part of Job, he heard the words that most of us fear, and it's this, while he was still speaking. In other words, in the story An individual comes and says, hey, I've got bad news. Starts to tell Job the bad news. And it says, while he was still speaking, another individual came and said, hey, i got some more bad news. And while he was still speaking, another individual came and said, hey, I've got some bad news. And you know what that's like. Pain and suffering upon pain and suffering upon pain and suffering where you feel like you can't take any more. This was a very bad day for a very good guy. And if that weren't enough, sometime later, Job was afflicted himself personally with sores. Tells us they started on the bottom of his feet and they went to the top of his head. And Job couldn't figure this out. Just like you and I, he thought, this situation is completely unfair. And so like us, Job finally just gets frustrated and gets honest and he begins to rant. He has a lot of angst towards God. He has a lot of angst towards what God has put him through, and he lets God have it. And we read this beginning in verse 6, and it's interesting because Job, even in his angst, he's like afraid to say what he really wants to say. But here's what he says. He says this, when I think about what I'm saying, verse 6, he says, I I shudder. My body trembles. And he says this, why do the wicked prosper? Growing old and powerful. They live to see their children grow up and settle down. They enjoy their grandchildren. Look at what happens to the wicked and look what's happening to me. He says in verse 9, their homes are safe from every fear and God, yeah, God does not punish them. Verse 13, he says, they spend their days in prosperity and even when they die, they go down into the grave in peace. And yet... Here's what Job just couldn't figure out. And yet they say to God, go away. We want no part of you in your ways. Who is the Almighty? And why should we obey him? What good will it do for us to pray? They have no respect for God. But yet Job says in verse 17, the light of the wicked never seems to be extinguished. He asks the question, do they ever have trouble? Does God distribute sorrows to them in his anger? Job can't understand. And let's be honest. If we were God, some of us think we are, 
we would run the world a little bit differently, wouldn't we? Good things would always happen to good people, and terrible things would always happen to terrible people. That would be our brand of justice. There was a news report a few years ago about a Czechoslovakian woman named Vera Sismak of Prague. And she discovered that her husband was cheating on her. This is a true story. And in her hurt and despair, she contemplated murdering him. She also contemplated killing herself, which she eventually chose to do. And so she jumped blindly out of her third-story window. However, she experienced only minor injuries because she unexpectedly landed on her cheating husband on the street below as he walked by, killing him. And we love that, don't we? We shouldn't love that, all right? We shouldn't love that. But we do love that because if we were God, that's the way things would work for bad people. When things did, people did terrible things, they would get struck by lightning or a Czech woman would fall from the sky and kill them. If we were God, that's the way it would go. And only good things would happen to good people, especially us. Good kids would always get straight A's. Lonely people would have plenty of friends. Faithful spouses would always have fairy tale marriages. Good parents would never get cancer. Couples who wanted children would always have them, three at a time. Homes would never be destroyed by fire, and the 49ers would always win the Super Bowl. That's how it would go. It's going to be a long time. That's how it would be if we were God, if we were God. But sitting here in this moment, we realize that that's not the human experience. We ask the question, so why didn't? Why didn't God create a world where there is no tragedy, and no suffering. And the short answer is simply this. He did. He did. Genesis tells us this. It says that creation, when God was done, he saw all that he had made. And it was very good. He looked around at everything that he had created. He said, this is great. This is good. This is perfect. This is without flaw. And then he said, let's take a break tomorrow. Everything was perfect. There was no evil. So if God is not the author, if our creator is not the author of tragedy and suffering, where does this tragedy and this pain and suffering come from? Four sources I want to run by you real quick. Here they are. Number one is this. Some of the suffering we experience in answering this question is the result of our own sin or our own poor choices. Our own sin or our own choices. It's like the law of natural consequences, right? If I cheat on my spouse, it's not a mystery why my spouse leaves me. If I smoke all my life, drink too much, eat the wrong food, it's not a mystery why I have health problems. If I'm a workaholic and I'm unengaged with my kids, it's not a mystery if they despise and detach from me. Let's be honest. Some of the suffering that we experience, if we're really honest, we can't shake our fist at God. We just need to look at ourselves in the mirror say some of it we've caused. Maybe not one decision, but a consistent pattern of less than good decisions. So some suffering, it's just a result of our own sin. Now, number two, some of our suffering is a result of other people's sin. If you're carjacked in a shopping center parking lot, you suffer because someone else sins. If your spouse is abusive or unfaithful, if your parents divorce, if your son or your daughter makes self-destructive choices, you suffer because of someone else's sin. When a car careens off the Las Vegas Strip and plows into innocent pedestrians on the sidewalk, we suffer because of someone else's sin. When a gunman walks into a, a concert hall and opens fire on innocent people, and they suffer because of someone else's sin. Maybe we're not all as good as we think we are. 
Maybe some of the suffering may be our own human self selfishness and irresponsibility. Years ago, the London Times, the newspaper, asked various writers at that time for an essay on the topic, this topic, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, a writer at that time, wrote perhaps the shortest essay in history when he responded, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem. And for a lot of our suffering, it comes from other people's sin because we're not all that good. Thirdly, some of our suffering, honestly, is a result of a war that's being waged on supernatural levels. I don't want you to get like, but sometimes we read in Job, if you read the entire story of Job, there are things that are going on that we can't see. There are battles being waged, and you know it. Sometimes you feel, you walk into a place, you get into a conversation, it's dark, it's oppressive. There's something beyond just the natural that's happening there. And so some of the pain and suffering, not all, sometimes we think everything's that somebody, devil's chasing us, no. But some of it is really a supernatural war that's being waged on a, on a deep spiritual level. The Bible tells us that the enemy has come to kill and to steal and destroy and some of that goes on and it causes pain and suffering. But here's the reality, the last one. Most of our suffering becomes because we live in a fallen world. Our world is broken. What God created in Genesis is not the world that we live in. There's not always a direct correlation between what I choose to do and what's happening to me. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, we all just get caught up in the fallout of living in this broken, unfair world together. It comes at times even unexpectedly. You might remember this story a few years ago. On a beautiful summer August day, about 100 tourists were cruising the Chicago River, if you've ever taken one of those architectural boat tours. And just as they were going underneath the Kinsey Street Bridge there, a custom tour bus that, belo- that belonged to the Dave Matthews Band was coming over the bridge as they were going underneath. And the driver decided to empty 800 gallons from the bus's septic tank into the river on top of these unsuspected tourists as they were taking their cruise. It was just a nice ride on a river on a beautiful day. I guess it's true. It happens. <laughs> now listen. This gives new meaning to what the Bible says, that it rains on the just and the unjust. But the truth is, we all get dumped on just like that, out of the blue sometimes. It has nothing to do with the personal choices we make. Sometimes I get nailed by your junk, and sometimes you get sick because of mine. Genesis 3 teaches us that because of Adam and Eve's sin, nature was corrupted and compromised. When Adam and Eve introduced sin into the perfect world that God had made, it put everything out of whack. And ever since that, this world has been out of sync with droughts and floods and wars and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and virus. Can I keep going? Fires and disease. The list goes on and on. The air is polluted. The water is contaminated. The ground's poisoned. It's kind of depressing. The reality is this is a result of our world being broken. The system is out of balance. Now, God doesn't cause these problems. There's no evil in God. But note this, and we got to wrestle with this a little bit, but God permits them. He does. He permits them. It's hard to understand, but Jesus was honest even when he said to us, he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. Let's be clear. God did create a world where there's no tragedy and suffering and pain. That's the answer to our question. But he also created a world with free will. And free will is a powerful thing. 
in so many ways, and it led to sin and destruction. You say, well, I don't want free will then. Why did God give us free will? Yes, you do, because God is love, and real love involves a choice. Instinctively, we know that. Some of you are sitting next to your spouse or significant other tonight, and they make a choice every day to love you. You wake up, and that breath, it's just heat, and it's just terrible next to you, and they have to make a choice, and every day they make a choice, and instinctively, we know that that's true. I don't want my wife to love me. I don't want my wife to stay faithful to me because God somehow computer programmed her to do that. I want her to love me because of all the other three billion plus guys on the planet Earth that she had the freedom to choose from. She said, that dude's hot. Right? She said, I choose the guy with the receding hairline. I choose the guy with the strange last name that's like an article of clothing to take on for the rest of my life. And that's meaningful to me, and it should be meaningful to you, because she had the freedom to choose not to be with me. And that's what free will is about. Now catch this. C.S. Lewis writes the following. You need to take a picture of this or something on the screen, because you need to ponder this a little bit. Here's what C.S. Lewis tells us. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible... So it's possible because of this free will. It invites evil into the world. It makes it a reality. He says this, it's also the only thing that makes possible any love or joy or goodness worth having. Ponder that. Love and joy and goodness is also only possible because of the free will that God gives us. God knew that with free will, sin would possibly mar the world, but he also knew that so many people would choose Keyword, choose to love him and would choose to be in relationship with him. So here's the deal. With all of that, is there any reason to hope? Is there any reason to keep hanging on? Because you and I know because of the presence of pain and suffering in our world, there are people who have said, if pain and suffering is true, then God isn't. Then God doesn't exist. And there are people that say, well, if pain and suffering really exist and evil exists in the world, then God may exist, but he isn't great. Because he can't do anything about it. He can't change it. And I don't want to serve that God. Or they may say, because pain and suffering and evil are in the world, then God exists. But he isn't good because he doesn't care. I think they're wrong. I think the exact opposite is true. We may view pain as the absence of God, but it is actually the place God is the most present. Think about it. We may view pain as somehow signaling that God is gone and isn't around, but in actuality, it's in the midst of our pain that God is the most present. James wrote a New Testament letter to the young believers you can read in your Bible in the early years of the church. And these were people who, were, who really understood suffering and persecution. This would have been their number one question about where God was. And here's what James had to say to them in James chapter 5. In verse 7, he says this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, read it off the screen with me. Be what? Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James says this, He says, if God could whisper two words in the midst of the pain that you may be sitting here right now going through, you may not like them, but here they are. He would say this, be patient. Be pa-. Now, I can be patient for like a few minutes, maybe an hour, a couple days, right? But he says this, be patient until the Lord's coming. Shane talked about it last week. That may be a long time. 
And so we're in the midst of this season of pain and suffering. And you and I, we go, listen, I want a solution to my suffering now. I want God to do something now. But James reminds us that the ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this life isn't found in this life. That the ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this world isn't found in this world. But God is. And God is whispering. And the whisper is saying, be patient. Be patient. Here's why. Because when he whispers, be patient, he's saying this. I know how you feel. God's aware. You see, when you answer the question of tragedy and suffering, you're not trying to give an explanation. Because the ultimate answer is not an explanation. It's the incarnation. It's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world and he experienced life and he also experienced suffering. Even the Son of God was not exempt from the brokenness and the sin that's in our world. He was charged falsely. He was beaten, humiliated, mocked, spit upon, stripped, and nailed to a cross. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in loving a God or following a God who's disinterested in me and detached and just watching my suffering from a distance. But we have a God who knows. He says, listen, I know how you feel. I have entered your world. I have felt your suffering and pain. And mark this down. When you hurt, he hurts. He's aware and he's whispering, be patient, be patient. I know how you feel. He's also saying this, your pain has a purpose. That God's at work. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, for God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. God can use the sorrow in our lives. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Because I regret a lot of pain and suffering I had to go through. And, and Paul says, listen, don't regret that. Don't resent that. Lean into it. Because that's where we seek God and we find God. And the value of the experience is of greater worth than whatever pain you may be going through. Thirdly, he says this, God's whispering, be patient, right? Be patient, because the pain will be over soon. God's redeeming. God is redeeming. Paul, who experienced tremendous amounts of hardship in his life, he wrote this. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We can endure a lot of pain when we know there's a positive end. When we know that there is a light at the end of of the tunnel. And we may go through 90 years in this light, in this life where the presence of God is there, but we experience a lot of pain and suffering. But they'll be remembered later on as light and momentary troubles. John gives us a picture in Revelation of this time. He says this, God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne, meaning Christ, said this. I love this. He said, I am making everything new. I mean, John gives us this amazing picture of heaven by telling us, hey, listen, you're going through stuff, but this will not be there. No more death, no more mourning. No more crying or pain, no more tragedy, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more anxious waiting rooms, no more tables for one, no more motionless ultrasounds, no more tear-drenched divorce papers. God's whispering, listen, your pain will be over soon. Why? Because lastly, God whispers, he says, listen, be patient, because you are not alone. He is there. Remember James? Just a moment ago, he said, he, he, he said the suffering you're going through 
And the patience that you need to have is like a farmer who plants a seed. I spent some summers as a kid on, on some family farms that we had in Illinois, and I found out I'm not a farmer because I don't have that much patience. It's a lot of boring stuff and a lot of hard work. What's interesting about farming, or even if you just dink around in your backyard and try to grow some flowers or something, is that you plant the seed, and then you do what you can do, right? You, you water, and you make sure it's got enough sunlight or not too much sunlight. But the reality is, once that seed's in the ground, you don't know what's going on under there, right? You can't really dig the seed up. If you dig the seed up, you've kind of hijacked the whole growth process. So you got to keep just doing what you're faithfully supposed to do while the seed works and interacts underneath the soil, and you allow the proper time for all this to happen so a valuable crop can be the result. And I wonder if that isn't such a great picture for us when we're going through pain and we're going through suffering to think of that seed. And wonder what's happening below the surface, out of sight. That we can be confident that something is going on right now in your life. Even if you limped into this room today and you're not even sure if this may be the last time. I'm like, I'm going to church one more time. And if this suffering doesn't stop, peace out, I'm done. And yet God's saying, listen, no, 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 be patient. I'm with you. And something's going on under the surface. There's a seed that's been planted and it's working in you that we don't see. Remember what C.S. Lewis said just a moment ago. He said, God gave us free will. Not just because it makes evil possible, but it's also the only thing that makes possible love or joy or goodness. Maybe that's what he was talking about. Maybe under the surface, there's all this love and joy and goodness that's happening in the midst of suffering. And I started to think this week, maybe as we look at suffering, our perspective is, is, is wrong. Maybe we're looking at it from the wrong direction. Maybe we're asking the wrong why question. Maybe we should be asking a different kind of why and catching a glimpse of what may be happening in joy and goodness and love below the surface. Maybe we should ask this question. Why would people, as we did last week, why would they sign up to give up a week or two of their vacation to travel around the world, to experience life with people they've never even met, to try to meet some needs and change some lives of people and children they may never see again? Why would someone do that? Maybe it's the seed that's going on below the surface? Why would a family in this church who suffered enormous tragedy be so passionate about helping others who are now in the midst of a similar pain and they're reaching out and they're trying to minister in the midst of their pain? Maybe that's the seed that's underneath the surface. Why would Holly decide just a few weeks ago to sit on a couch in front of thousands of people that she had never met and to share a very raw and, and, and really personal tragedy in her life so that in the hope she may save someone from the same exact experience. Why? Because that's a seed. It's a seed that's growing underneath the surface in the midst of a world that we see that's filled with suffering and pain. It's the seed that's growing. Why would a retired individual from this church get in their car and drive across town on Christmas Eve and go to a home for people who are mentally disabled and fill up their car with those individuals and bring them to a Christmas Eve service so that they could have just an hour where they could really see that Christ is at the center of Christmas? Why would he, why would he do that? Maybe because it's a seed in the midst of suffering. Why would a local manager of a budget suites middle of town decide to provide Christmas for the kids of his largely transient tenants by supplying gifts for them this holiday season? Because it's a seed. And why would God allow his one and only son to be born in poverty and live a sinless life only to be betrayed by a close friend and crucified on a cross? Because God knew that was a seed. 
that would be reborn and resurrected and transformed. So all the suffering and pain and tragedy that we're experiencing, we need to remember this. God is up to something that you can't always see. we got to trust it. You're not alone. That God is up to something that you can't always see. And whatever it is you're facing today, he sees it. Whatever it is that you can barely whisper in a prayer, he hears it. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, he feels it. And he is with you. He's with you. Now, this is what's cool. Not only is he beside you, but we are beside you. See, and what's great is that that's why you come to a church like this. Because like some people, you can like get a 60-inch, 70-inch TV and watch all this online. Hello to those of you that are doing that right now. Right? But the thing is, is that the missing element of that is not the content. It's the community. It's the community. And so that's why for some of you, we're shoving on you in 2016. Because you've been sitting here maybe for months, maybe for years. And you hear us talking about get connected in community, get in a group. And you see all the people tonight, they're waiting for you out there. And you're going to dive out the parking lot the other way. Right? Because it's time for you to stop sitting by yourself. It's time for you as a couple to stop living life by yourself. It's time for you to stop suffering and experiencing pain by yourself. Here's why groups and doing life together, it's not, it's not just, oh, we're going to study something or we're going to hang. That's important. But it's because sometimes when you're going through something, you need to borrow faith from somebody else. I've had to do it all the time. You need community or somewhere where you go, man, my faith is not strong, so I'm going to have to live off your faith for a little while until mine gets stronger. And so I just want to challenge some of you tonight. I want to challenge you. Now, don't clap unless you're going to get in a group. Like, just don't even do that if you're going to run out, all right? But I want to challenge you because I think some of you have been thinking about that whole concept wrong. Like, it's intimidating. I'm going to go sit in somebody's living room. I'm going to get a bunch of weird people. You might. Oh, well. You know, get over it. But the truth is this, is that we do not want you to be alone in the midst of what life will bring to you. So I have a group that I meet with. I know it's surprising because pastors are renowned for like saying, do this, I'm not doing it, but you do it, right? But I'm actually in a group, and, and it's funny because our group, we call it kind of informally, we call it the not-so-small group, and don't do what we're doing, but there's, there's a lot of couples. And part of it is because I just don't like like two or three couples. It makes me crazy because I want like eight or nine. So if I'm tired of talking to you, I can just say goodbye, and I can come over here and talk to the other person. I'm just strange like that. So we all gather together. Well, a few weeks ago, I was in the lobby and I saw Danielle and Jordan, young couple who I'd known before they were married, and I knew that they had been going through a tremendous tragedy and pain in their life, and they were like, we need to get connected. I said, come to my group. Just come. And so they showed up about two weeks ago on a Monday night to our normal group, and nobody in the group knew much about them. They're friendly. We had dinner like we always do. We did our little study, and then we came to our time of prayer, and we were going around, and people were just mentioning things, and, and Jordan finally said, hey, I want to tell you guys something. And he started to share what they had been going through in their lives and the tremendous tragedy that had happened. And what happened that was dynamic in the room was that a a couple and then another couple said, we've been praying for you. Like we didn't know you. We've never seen you. We didn't even know who you were. But it had trickled down through the community. We need to pray for this couple. And now you're sitting here. And there was just this moment of tremendous strengthening for those that were in the room and strengthening for them because that's why we do that. And we have a value that says this, life change happens and transformation happens best in the midst of relationship. And so we want you to be able to do that. And because, not because we want you to, but because you need that in the midst of the suffering and pain in your life. And so I did this tonight, boldly, 
And courageously, I asked Jordan and Danielle if they would, in the midst of this, as they still process what they've been experiencing over the last two months in their lives, if they would, in a way to bring hope to us, share a bit of their story with our church community. And so I want you to hear from them tonight. Hi, my name is Danielle Connell, and this is my husband, Jordan. And last April 26, 2015, we gave birth to our first child, Carson. He weighed eight pounds, 13 ounces. He was super long, long arms, long legs, long fingers, um, and he was amazing. Carson, uh, we found out about seven weeks after he was born that he had a rare liver disease called biliary atresia, where basically your liver doesn't function quite right and it slowly deteriorates over time, which affects the rest of your body systems. The only cure for biliary atresia is a liver transplant which has a life expectancy of about 20 to 30 years. When we found this out, we found ourselves asking why, why Carson, why us, why our family. We had done everything right and it just caught us totally off guard. When we first learned about it, I cried and I just cried for days and I couldn't understand why God would give me this baby and then this would happen. I didn't get it. And it took a long time for me to understand through my husband's help um, that, you know, we have this opportunity to be parents and we can either let Carson see us sad all the time or we could just let him see us happy. And so we went with happy and he was the happiest of all of us. Carson was always laughing and smiling all the time. He had the most infectious smile that can make anybody laugh. He loved his milk a certain temperature. <laughs> he hated to eat peas. On the weekends he would lay in bed with us until whatever time we decided to get up. And on the weekdays, he would spend his mornings with grandma. And he had a way of making everybody feel like he loved them in his own unique, special way. Through all of this, learning that he had this liver disease, he had to go undergo a lot of procedures. So he had a surgery at two months old. He has had surgeries at five months old. And then at six months old, uh, we found, Jordan and I found ourselves giving him medicine through a central line at home. Like we had no idea what we were doing. It just, added up um, and it became really tolling on all of us. Through everything that we had to do, whether it was the medicine, taking him to the emergency room, spending weekends or entire weeks in the pediatric ICU, he never wavered. He was always smiling and laughing and when we felt defeated or wanted to give up, we would just look at his face and look at him laughing and smiling and that's what gave us the ability to go on. Um, when he was seven months old, I came home from an event one night and I went in his room to feed him in the middle of the night and um, uh, I learned that he had vomited up some blood and so we panicked and called and they told us to take him to the emergency room in the morning and the same thing happened again in the morning so I was panicked trying to take care of him and didn't know what to do and as soon as he had finished I laid him on the ground and was trying to clean him up and after all that had happened, after all of our fear, he looked up at me and he just beamed. He smiled so big. And I just thought, even now I think how crazy through all of this terror that he's going through, that's what he chooses to do. Instead of moan or complain or whine, he smiles. So we took that to heart. We got to the emergency room that morning and uh, they did a lot of tests on him. And that night was the last time we saw him awake. Um, doctors spent a lot of time working with him, but early in the morning on December 9th, he passed away. And um, it was very difficult for us and it left a huge hole in our hearts. 
We're so grateful to be here with you guys and share our story, even under these circumstances, which are so terrible because that's definitely not the path that we would have liked to walk down. Um, but we get to share our message of hope through our grief and our struggle of what God has for us. I used to think that God gave Carson to us because we were so strong. But after he was gone, I realized that God had made us strong together because it was always in his plan to give Carson to us. And how amazing is that, that God trusted us. He gave us Carson and trusted in us. And now as his parents, we're able to be a testament to the hope God gives us when we're in grief or struggling. And every morning we wake up, we look at pictures, we look at videos, we start our day with Carson and end our day with Carson. And some days are really painful and it's really hard and some days we're content with our situation. But either way, whichever day it is, um, we know we're not alone because God is with us. And for us as parents, we know that he's walked this path by seeing Jesus on the cross. So how can we be upset when we know that he's always in us, he's always in our hearts? So that gives us peace to walk through our journey every day. So if God is so powerful, then why would he let this happen to us? Well, I could also ask, why would he allow Jesus to suffer? Why would he ask Abraham to kill his son Isaac? I don't know the answers to these questions, but what I do know is that what we see is just the corner of the fabric and the bigger picture. And for us, that gives us hope. Our purpose now is knowing that we are here to help bring other people in their struggle and their grief closer to God because that's what happened in our story. And it's unfortunate, but and we hate that it happened to Carson, but we're closer with God now than we ever have been because this happened to us. So we just hope that that message gets spread because at the end of the day, we know that today is just one last day until we get to see our little Carson again.